let's get right down to it. 93 years ago tomorrow, uh, the nation's most high-profile cold case happened in a garage in Chicago, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. What happened that day? Was Al Capone actually involved? And why hasn't the crime been officially solved? With us to discuss this is uh, probably one of the most knowledgeable experts in the history of organized crime, Dr. John Binder, who's one of Chicago's very own. Welcome to the show. John, how are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi. Uh, John Binder is a retired faculty member at the University of Illinois. He received his Ph.D. from University of Chicago. He's the author of several books. One is The Chicago Outfit, which details Chicago's gang past, and also Al Capone's Beer Wars. Uh, he has served as an advisor to A&E's biography on Al Capone and History Channel's St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Um, so can you tell us a little bit, um, Dr. Binder, to set the stage for what happened on February 14th, 1929? Well, the uh, Capone gang had been fighting um, at various times with the uh, Northside gang, their greatest rivals since about 1924, uh, early 1929. They were, again, fighting on all fronts, and um, the Capone gang decided on a master stroke. Gee, what if we can take out, hopefully, George Bugs Rand, the leader of the Northside Gang at time, and some of his top men, and uh, either bring them to the peace table or um, you know, defeat them and absorb them. And so tell us what happened that day. Uh, the, the garage itself, um, can you kind of describe the neighborhood where this occurred and who owned it, what was it being used for, and why did this whole thing occur there? Well, the garage where the uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre occurred was at 2122 North Clark Street. That was a um, you know, quiet north side neighborhood, very working class. Um, the garage was being rented at the time by one member of the north side gang. They were using it as a um, point to uh, keep trucks and things that they were involved with in uh, Shirley Liquor, liquor uh, Transportation and uh, from what we can tell, a section of the Northside Gang, not Moran himself, but a section of the Northside Gang, probably used the garage as their uh, regular headquarters. Okay. And so tell us what happened. About what time happened? You know, what do we know about who pulls up in front of this garage and then what transpires inside the garage? At about 10.15 that morning, um, cars pull up both in the alley behind the garage and in front of the garage. Uh, they're posing as um, police officers. Uh, certainly a couple men who got out were in the standard patrolman's uniform. Other men were dressed in suit and ties the way Chicago police detectives would have been. And they staged what looked like uh, it was a raid on the garage itself. Just a standard police raid. So they come in and how many people approximately actually entered the garage? Uh, we're not totally sure. Um, we don't know how many came in the front and how many possibly came in the back. Um, I think at least four and possibly more men, again, posing as police officers, entered the garage that day. Okay. And let's talk about the victims. Uh, who were they, generally speaking? You don't need to name all of them. But, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what were they doing there? What kind of people were they? And were they all there kind of for the same purpose? Well, of the seven men who were killed that day, five of them were major members of the Northside Gang, also known as the uh, Bugs Moran Gang at the time. Uh, the sixth man was a ex-convict who worked as a mechanic 
working on the trucks in the garage. And the seventh man, Reinhard Schwimmer, was an optometrist who liked to pal around with the north side hoodlums. He probably just dropped in for a cup of coffee on the wrong day. Interesting. And uh, so tell us about the shooting itself from what we know. Well, from what we can piece together, the uh, the men who came in the garage uh, acted like it was a police raid. They lined everyone they found, seven individuals against the uh, north wall of the garage, frisked them, relieved them of their weapons, etc. And then while these guys are standing with their hands up against the wall, their backs turned to the seeming police officers. Uh, then very quickly, all hell breaks loose. The uh, shooters open up with two uh, machine guns. And also, the ballistic evidence shows us that one shotgun was also used. And within a few minutes, um, everybody in the garage is dead. All the uh, all the mem- all the seven men who had been there before the raid are dead or dying. So, so this happens. And what you know, one of the things that that I just don't have a clear picture on is how did this particular event uh, kind of affect our city and. I assume there was a lot of national uh, attention to this as well. How did it affect the city and the nation when it comes to prohibition, gang issues, organized crime, et cetera? Well, the you know the better elements in Chicago um, were outraged by this, and it was you know very outrageous. Elsewhere during prohibition, there were numerous incidents in the United States where there's gangland murders where three men are killed at the same time. But there's no other case of four, five, six, or more men being killed. So that really ups the ante in terms of the number of victims, and its very nature um, was quite dramatic, etc. So uh, one of the responses was that some of the major citizens in Chicago contacted uh, the new president, President Hoover, and asked him to uh, redouble the uh, federal efforts against that are already ongoing against uh, Al Capone and the Capone gang. We're here talking to Dr. John Binder, who is an expert on the issue of the Chicago outfit and uh, the author of Capone's Beer Wars, among other books and studies. Um, so can you tell me your best evidence? I mean, you've looked at this and you've probably looked at source materials and, and, and done a lot of research on this. What is the evidence? I guess I should start by asking you, was Al Capone involved to your to your belief? Um, he was not directly involved in the sense of he wasn't one of the gunmen. And in fact, he made sure to be down in Florida at the time. But it was definitely a Capone operation. Al Capone and the Capone gang were behind it, working in conjunction with some of their allies. That I think we're going to talk about in just a few seconds here. And we will. Um, and, and how close, you know, I've read a little bit about this, and it it, it seemed that Capone, there was, a, there was talk about charging Capone. How close did they actually come to doing that? And did they have any evidence tying him to this other than this would be kind of a logical thing that he would do? Well, they never uh, charged Al Capone formally. They certainly interviewed him about it a little bit, but um, you know, he, they never made a case against him uh, Again, the fact that he um, was down in Florida, distance on the morning of February 14th, distances him from the crime. Um, on the other hand, in terms of evidence, I think you alluded to, in 1935, the FBI captured a guy named Byron Bolton, who was one of the lookouts watching the garage around the time of St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and he gave a full confession to the FBI, discussing including the, plan- the early planning stages 
in October and November of 1928, where our top members of the Pone Gang helped plan the St. Valentine's Massacre with the actual uh, people involved, including uh, Byron Bolton. So tell me about Byron Bolton and, and what prompted his confession to the police. Well, Byron Bolton had worked with Fred Killerberg, who the evidence points to as the leader of the group of gunmen who were involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And then sometime after that, he drifted um, off into working with the uh, one of the uh, prohibition, pardon me, one of the uh, Depression-era bank robbery gangs, the Barker Carpus Gang, that was quite famous. So he was in the early 1930s robbing banks and doing other things with them. And he was captured in Chicago in early 1935 after a gunfight, and he was looking at a uh, prison term. So he decided to cooperate with the FBI. And what's most important for us is he gave a full confession to everything he knew about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and who was involved. And to your knowledge, was that confession credible, uh, given the facts and given uh, the background that we know? I think it's very credible. Uh, Everything that Bolton said um, seems to stand up well to the known facts. It it was well. It was known years in advance by the uh, Chicago Police Department that Bolton had been one of the lookouts. Uh, The apartment that had been rented that day, uh, Bolton left something behind with his name on it, which gave them a very very good clue that hey. Of the two lookouts there that day, it, one of them is this Byron Bolton guy who runs around with Fred Killer Burke and his pals. So why, after that interview that you say was credible and, and must have been deemed to be credible at the time, why didn't the police and the FBI pursue these leads and actually arrest somebody for this crime? Well, again, Bolton's confession is in 1935. By that point, I think um, everybody he names is already in prison or dead or believed to be dead, meaning the five um, men who were most directly involved in the killings the morning of February the 14th. And we're going to talk about those. So so this was kind of a little too late in that the prosecution uh, prosecution wouldn't have done a whole lot of anything. Yeah, that that's, that's essentially true. There, there was um, no one to prosecute or, uh, in terms of who was clearly still alive, uh, Fred Killer Burke, who was at the uh, the center of it all, he was already in prison in Michigan for murdering a Michigan police officer serving a life sentence. And we're going to talk about him a little bit. He, th- th- that, w- that was a very interesting uh, twist to this whole thing. Uh, let me just go off, and we're going to have one more question, and then we're going to take a break. And if you sure. can come back with us, I want to continue. This is great. Um, let's talk about Al Capone. Of course, you know, it's I travel all over the world as as many people do, and anywhere I go, uh, you know, they I have a Chicago T-shirt on, and people will either say Michael Jordan or Al Capone. Mm-hmm. And even now, after all these years, Al Capone, they may not know any English, but they sure know that name. Mm-hmm. What, what you know, having studied him as long as you have, if if. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to ask this question, then I'm going to take a break, because I know this answer okay. deserves a little bit more of an answer that I can, than you can give in this short period of time. But I'm going to ask the question, if I met Al Capone at a social event, what would I see? What would he be like? And 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 uh, what kind of guy would he be? We're going to come back. You're listening to the Karen Conti Show. We're here with Dr. John Binder, who's a retired faculty member at the University of Illinois, who's an expert on the Chicago outfit and the history thereof. We'll be back in a minute.
Welcome back. We're talking about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Tomorrow will mark 93 years uh, since the nation's most high-profile cold case. Still not solved officially, and we're here with one of the experts in the nation on the very topic, Dr. John Binder, who is a retired faculty member at University of Illinois. He's an author who's written many books, uh, Al Capone's Beer Wars, and author of the Chicago Outfit. Thank you so much for holding through all of our uh, news and commercials. Um, I started the question before we had the break, uh, Dr. Binder, and the question is, Al Capone really just kind of is a character in the Chicago history that I think people have romanticized and and kind of put on a pedestal as well as uh, demonized. But if I were to have met Al Capone sitting at a bar somewhere, what would I see and how would I how would his personality impact me? Um, let me give you a slightly longer answer to that. Al Capone had two sides of his personality. On the one hand, he was a gangster gang leader. He personally killed people, and he ordered people killed. He could be ruthless uh, if he had to be, which happens uh, quite a bit during gang wars. On the other hand, he had a wife who loved him, who he wasn't especially faithful to, but he had a son he loved and doted over. Um, so... To quote historian Mark Lavelle, uh, Al Capone would be a bad guy to have as an enemy, but a good guy to have as a friend. If you (laughs) met him in a social setting, he might have been very nice and gracious to you if he didn't feel threatened by you in any way. Interesting. And, you know, I suppose there are a lot of criminals out there, serial killers included, who do live a dual life, where on one hand, they're a perfectly appropriate neighbor, and they go off to their job every day, and then they have the side of them that does these these evil things, and it's almost hard to equate uh, the two yeah, of them. You know, what the heck, even Stalin had a wife and kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and I suppose, you know, char- charisma helps uh, no matter what mm-hmm. you do in life. Um, hopefully, you're putting it toward a good a Good, um, uh, good career, but 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 that but uh, you know charisma helps no matter what job you're in. We talked a little bit <clears throat> about a guy named Fred <clears throat> Killer Burke, and I put that in quotes. It's like a middle name quotes, and <clears throat> he was ultimately arrested in December following the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And can you tell us a little bit about who this guy, Fred Killer Burke, was, how he was arrested, and what his uh, involvement might have been in the massacre? Well, uh, some broad brushstrokes about Fred Burke. Um, He comes out of St. Louis gangland. He was a member of the Egan's or Rats gang in St. Louis, which basically broke up in 1923. After that, he's a a roving uh, freelance um, killer, gunman, bandit, you know, during the 1920s, uh, doing a variety of things with his compatriots, sometimes robbing banks, sometimes doing contract killings in places like Detroit for the Detroit underworld, or doing um, uh, high-profile kidnappings of uh, often of um, wealthy criminals, things like that. Um, in terms of St. Valentine's Day Massacre, there's very strong evidence of his involvement. Chicago Police Department had three eyewitnesses who said that Burke was the man they saw go into that garage on that morning. Burke had the two machine guns, which ballistically were shown to have been used in St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And as I say, you've also got the Byron Bolton confession that names Burke as one of the killers. So he gets arrested uh, months later in December. Was it, was it in Michigan, John, where, where he gets arrested? Um, 
Well, no, he killed a police officer in St. Joseph's, Michigan, and then went on the run. And he's finally arrested in um, western Missouri in, I believe, early 1931 is when he's eventually apprehended. And do they find guns in his car? Is that how they tie those guns to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre? He was staying in a house at the time with his uh, probably common-law wife uh, just outside St. Joe's, Michigan. Um, uh, keep story short, he kills the St. Joe's police officer, and he goes on the run. He looks like he gets to his house, grabs some things, and just takes off. He, he thinks police are right behind him, which, in fact, they were. They were maybe 15 minutes behind him. By the time they get to the house where Burke was staying, he's left his arsenal behind him, two machine guns, um, I think at least a shotgun, some other weapons, ammunition. The police seize that arsenal. The machine guns are sent to Chicago because since April 1929, Chicago Police Department had named him as the lead suspect of St. Valentine's Massacre, and the machine guns are shown with ballistic certainty to have been the two that were used in the St. Valentine's Day killings. So they tie these weapons to the killing. So he gets he goes to jail for the killing of the the police officer, right? Yeah, when he's captured in Missouri in 1931, four different states try to extradite him back there for crimes, including Illinois wanted to ha- have him extradited to Chicago to answer for St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The Missouri judge decides that Michigan has the most compelling case for the murder of the St. Joseph police officer. He's extradited back to Michigan where he where he, he doesn't fight that extradition. He goes back there, is convicted of murdering this police officer, and is sentenced to life in prison. Michigan doesn't have the death penalty, so maybe that was a, a strategic uh, uh, choice there. But so First he's in jail. Go back to Michigan, yeah. Yeah, so so exactly that reason. So he so he's sitting there in jail, and as we know, and as we see in modern day, whether it's Drew Peterson or someone else, even if you're convicted of a crime and you're you're there's strong evidence that you committed another crime, prosecutors will j- drag you out of the prison cell and and prosecute you for the other crime. Why do you think that didn't happen? with um with killer burke well um illinois could have asked that he be extradited back to uh chicago to a stand trial for st valentine's massacre uh, i'm not sure if michigan would have complied um at that point in a criminal justice sense it's sort of a moot point burke is already to serve life in prison in michigan so giving him another life sentence in illinois serves no purpose. He'll die in prison in Michigan anyway. Um, so I, I think those are the sort of the, the brass tacks when you get down to it. The only thing it would have done would have, uh, quote, officially have cleared in a police sense the St. Valentine's Day Massacre by convicting someone. But I don't think uh, by 19, the early 1930s that counted for so much. So the bottom line before we we say goodbye is that you, Al Capone was probably involved in the in the planning of this uh, in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And this guy, uh, Fred Keller Burke, was probably at least one of the gunmen, if not the gunman. He was one of the gunmen involved. It was um, a group of killers that he put together to do a job for the Capone gang for pay. Another piece of evidence is that um, Claude Maddox, who led the circus gang in Chicago, he was a Capone gang ally. Chicago police raided Maddox's office and found evidence there that he brought... Burke and these guys in to do the job. 
So there's a lot of evidence pointing in this direction. So the fact that it's a cold case may only be a result of the fact that it was too late kind of to prosecute everybody by the time they put all other pieces together. Yes, and in my opinion and in the opinion of uh, many historians, it's logically a solved crime. It was Burke and the guys he ran with who did it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. John Binder. He is the author of the book, The Chicago Outfit, which details Chicago's gang past from 1900 to 2003, author of Al Capone's Beer Wars and the Philadelphia Organized Crime, the 20s and 30s. I highly recommend you read his books if you're interested in this period of history and, uh, and the whole Al Capone thing. Thank you so much for joining us and happy Valentine's Day to you. Thank you, Karen.